I'm going to pick up our reading in verses 15 through 17, which really does sort of start in the middle of a, of a sentence in the Greek. So I'm going to go on back to verse 13. So we're actually reading at least as it was delivered to us, whole sentences rather than starting in a half sentence, okay? Uh, verse 13 of First Peter chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. And yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful again that you're a God who has spoken. And that in your mercy to us, you've made what you've said so readily available to us. Superintending it so that we could have accurate pictures in our modern Bibles of the things that you from eternity have spoken. More than that, you tell us in your word that the Holy Spirit guides us into truth. And therefore, as we study your living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword word, your Holy Spirit is carrying out a ministry within us, working in us. So Lord, do that work. Help us to understand what you've said and why you've said it. Help us to recognize how it's meant to work out in the life you've given us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, starting in verse 13, as we've already begun to look at some of those verses today, uh, the point, as we've already studied, is that we are to be sojourners, exiles in this world. Uh, Sojourners, exiles, who not merely live like sojourner exiles, in the sense of creating a contrasting picture, a light in the darkness, so to speak, through our lifestyle, but we are to be sojourner exiles who actually speak as well as live. A certain way. Uh, really, while it might seem a pretty straightforward statement to make, it's revolutionary actually, because many people uh, believe that if only I sort of live a certain way as a Christian, that God will be using me, and that's really my witness. I'm just I'm living in this certain fashion. But brothers and sisters, understand this: if you live as a believer. All, and you don't have words tied to it, all that the unsaved can conclude about you is that you're a good person, and that must be how somebody is saved, by being a good person. No one ever intuitively comes to understand the gospel because they see you living a certain way. Now, you are to live that way. God wants us uh, to live as light in a darkness, and it creates opportunities to share. But you have to share. You have to, you have to communicate the gospel, the message of the truth, to combine with the witness. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20, we're told that we are ambassadors. God set us aside for that task. You know, we're the ones, God speaking through us, to communicate to a lost world, be reconciled. And this is the means of reconciliation, what the Lord Jesus has done for us. So we're to be examples, but we're also to be ambassadors. We looked at some prerequisite attitudes to be an effective witness and communicator of the gospel. 
Uh, we looked at being zealous for what's good. We looked about not being afraid of the world's response. Uh, we talked about honoring Christ as Lord in our hearts. And so we've laid that foundation. But starting now in verse 15, which is where we pick up our study, I want to look today at three strategies, methods. I'm not sure the best word to use here. But God is giving us some specifics about that communicative process. Uh, things that come into play and in having an effective witness. In the first of those, we encounter in verse, the second part of verse 15, In your hearts honor Christ as Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always being prepared to give a defense. I mean, it's a command, by the way, here. It's not a suggestion. God is saying, always be prepared. This is in an imperative mood. Uh, always being prepared. Now, what does that mean? And I think there's several things we have to address in seeking to answer that. The first of the issues is, what does prepared to make a defense mean? You know, that's a, that's a good start. What does God mean by that? What does it mean to be prepared to make a defense? The word prepared uh, translates a Greek word, hitoimos, which means to be equipped, prepared. It describes an individual, I mean, it's not just a word you encounter in the Bible, it was part of the Greek language, and it described an individual who had expended the necessary effort to be ready to address a need when it would arise. In other words, you've done the work beforehand. Think of it in terms of somebody going on a camping trip and have outfitted themselves rather than just simply taking off and then discovering as they're on their camping trip, oh, I should have probably brought food or, you know, whatever else was with it. It's, it's the outfitting that's the concept here. And God says, listen, uh, God calls for us to do some advanced equipping, advanced preparation. There's no way we can carry out our ambassador role off the cuff. We carry out the ambassador role by reflection and equipping. We have to do that. By the way, this same Greek word is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, remember, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are talking about stewardship. Two whole chapters giving over to that, to that concept which is, by the way, all the more condemning when people have screwed up ideas about stewardship because God's gone to great length to explain New Covenant stewardship pretty well in those chapters. But that's another issue. I'll move away from it. But right now, in the ninth chapter, in, in verse 5, it says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Not under compulsion, in other words. And the be ready is that Greek word. Now, what's it meaning there? Well, obviously, the same sort of concept. God is saying, through Paul in this case, he says, listen, I want you to do something in advance to have the money in place. I was thinking of the ability to send some money to help out Agnes in the hospital. You know, it, we could have tried to raise money, sort of said, well, wait, we'll try to do that. But God had allowed us to have some in advance, so that we could be ready to do something in an emergency situation that arose. So do you see how the word is used in this stewardship concept? The same word comes into play, <coughs> excuse me, 
in relationship to witness and testimony. Get prepared in advance so that when the need arises, you're able to respond to it. Now, the other part of this, uh, not just prepared, but defense. What does the defense mean? Prepared to make a defense. Apologia is the word in the Greek. We get that word apologetics from that word, by the way, which is kind of a broad term to describe people making a defense for the faith. (coughs) Excuse me. It means to have a reasoned, thought-out response to something. To be able to supply the evidence that's being requested or needed in some judicial case is an example of how that word is used in the Greek language. What God is saying is that I want you to have evidence. I want you to have a thought-out, reasoned response tied to the hope that is in you. In order to have that, it means you must have spent some time thinking about the basics of it. I mean, how are you going to have a reasoned defense if you haven't thought about the defense? No, it's, it's like going on the stand and being asked a question totally out of left field and you have not prepared to answer that at all. Uh, God says, I don't want that happening. You know, if you're my ambassador, I, I don't want you caught off guard like that. I want you to have thought through. I want you to think about what it means to defend the hope that is in you. Think through it. By the way, as one of the one of the Greek scholars pointed out, the implicit idea here is that somebody's actually going to ask you. It's not like, well, take be prepared because there's a, there's this outside possibility in your life that somebody may actually ask you about the things that are important to your heart that have to do with the hope that is in you. Now, that's not the idea. The idea is that somebody will ask you. You say, well, the people, people who do that, there's some people I wish would ask me and they won't do it. Well, that may well be the case. But God is saying, you will be asked. You will be. You will be asked about it. About the faith and hope that you have. To be prepared means I've thought about how I'm going to answer when I'm asked. It doesn't mean, by the way, that we necessarily in advance have every answer to every question that might arise, every issue that somebody could bring up. I mean, that's, of course, looking for the Holy Spirit's direction in the midst of responding to people. But understand, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit's enablement in witness is never meant to compensate for your laziness and disobedience to God. It's meant to be a supplement to your obedience to what God is saying. Meaning you can't prepare everything, you may not know everything, but you've prepared and then therefore the Holy Spirit uses, you, you know, if you're never in the Word, how's the Holy Spirit going to bring back to your, wor- to your mind some of the Word related to the hope? I mean, you've got to be in the Word. You've got to be preparing. So you follow the point? It's not saying, well, we, this is a human endeavor, we don't need the Holy Spirit's work. Nobody is touched apart from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit's ministry. That's key. But we have a role. We have a role. That's why we're to study to show ourselves approved. That's why we're to be doers, not merely hearers of the word. God says, hey, you've got a responsibility. 
So being prepared to make a defense means that we've spent some time ahead of time thinking about the questions, about the hope that is ours. It means that you and I have a responsibility to do more than simply respond to people by saying, oh, well, I feel it inside. Brothers and sisters, there's nobody in this world who believes anything who can't respond to other people and say, well, I believe it inside. That proves nothing. That proves nothing. Feelings prove nothing, except that you have the ability to have feelings. That's not a uniquely Christian characteristic. Everybody's got them. Fact is, truth is, psychedelic mushrooms will give you feelings. I mean, what, what's that mean? People say, well, you know, I know it's true because I, I feel Jesus within. Well, that's, it may well be you do, but that's absolutely useless in the context of the world in which we find ourselves. God is saying everybody's got feelings about something. They're attributing it to something. What do you have that is the reason defense for the hope that's in you? The reason defense. I have a responsibility before God to share logical, reasoned evidence. Not just compare feelings. Where I say, well, I feel this way. And the person says, well, I feel this way. Then where do you go from there? Except to say, well, we both have feelings, I guess, you know. I think my feelings are more valid than your feelings. And they say, well, no, my feelings are more valid than your feelings. Or You, you follow? It's a, it's a hopeless morass. You can't get anywhere with that. And yet some say, well, that's the essence of my witness. I've got feelings. Christianity is not some privatized feeling. Although, thank the Lord, it, there is a privatized dimension to it because we are saved as individuals and God deals with us as individuals. And yet, Christianity is more than that. It's eternal objective truth. It's not a matter of comparing feelings with people. Ultimately, we need to share something much more determinative. We need to share God's Word with people. Because it's the Word that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit. It isn't your feelings that do that. Only the Word does that. And as it relates to your hope. So, really, the second part of this uh, first thing is, okay, if that's what it means to make a defense, what, what is being prepared to make a defense? What is this hope that's in me that we're supposed to be making a defense about? What's that all about? Well, the word hope, as it translates in the scripture, is kind of like an umbrella. Uh, like love is an umbrella. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 gives you lots of definitive pieces to describe to you what agape love means. You see, it's like an umbrella under which a lot of things fit. The word hope is like that. It's an umbrella under which a lot of hopes, characteristics of hope, fit. People are generally not going to ask you about the umbrella. Or when they phrase a question to you, that's not what they're asking about. They're asking about something under the umbrella that happens to be scratching where they itch. Now, what kinds of hope fit under the umbrella of hope? Well, the Scripture gives us a number of those things that all are linked to the gospel hope that is in us. For example, in Colossians 1.27, it says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Galatians 2.20 picks up on a similar things that have been crucified with Christ, yet I no longer live, and yet the life I live, uh, I live, Christ is alive in me, and so on and so forth. The reason I keep running into problems with that is I had it so many translations and then had studied in the Greek and the construction is a little different than in any of the translations. But the point is there that God says, listen, Christ is alive in us. That's part of the hope. Part of the hope that I may be asked about is the fact that I talk about personal relationship with Jesus Christ and interaction with him within my life and the, and the opportunity to understand who he is and to be truly in relationship with him. That's our hope. That's one of the pieces of the hope. And that could be what somebody asks about. In 1 Thessalonians 5.8, we read these words. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about having pointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 is saying, we have a hope that we've passed out of judgment into life. I'm not afraid of dying. Not because I've somehow conquered the fear of physical pain, but because I don't have to grieve like the rest of the world. I, as 1 Thessalonians 5 goes on to explain, we don't have to grieve like the rest of the world, because we have a hope, a settled hope in Christ. And so sometimes the hope they're asking about is, why aren't you afraid of death like everybody else is? The second chapter of Hebrews says everybody's held in fear of death. Lifelong fear of death is the way it describes it. He says, people say, well, especially around people who've died, maybe friends, family, and they're looking, why, why do you have a hope I don't have? Why are you confident about having passed out of judgment into life? Why are you confident about them in a way that other people just have wishful thinking about? So it could have that form, you see. Are you prepared to answer such a question, especially in that sort of strategic time? Titus chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. We have a hope to live forever in the Lord's presence. That hope of eternal life, much related to what I was just saying. Somebody could ask about that, you know. Is this life all there is? No, no, this life goes on. The issue isn't whether life goes on, it's where you're going to be in the life that goes on. I know where I'll be. I'll be in the Lord's presence. Sang about that today, actually. I know that. That's where I'll be. That's the answer, you see. And they're saying, I don't know. Is this all there is? Is it die? Is what happens afterwards? Uh, is what people are trying to convince themselves about, like, well, Everybody goes to heaven. Is that true? <laughs> You've all, how can you answer? What are you saying? Are you not saying anything in response to such things? That's the issue. The issue of First Peter chapter 3. I was thinking in Titus chapter 2 verses 10 to 13. It says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this current age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
You say, well, I have confidence Jesus is coming. Every time we share in the Lord's Supper, we share in that until He comes. We remind ourselves of these things until He comes. I know He's coming. And what that means in practice and in defense, history has a point. It's unfolding according to a plan. There's a climax to it. Are you able to respond to people with an understanding that history is not just this randomly swirling reality? I was thinking of Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 17, it says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, the hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner, and so on and so forth. You know, is that, you have this hope of current and future access to the Father, boldly coming into his presence in prayer, knowing we're going to be in his presence. Uh, is that a hope you have? There will be times when that hope, in the midst of people who have no confidence because at some deep level they understand they're separated from God. Sin, they're sinners and they don't feel close to God and whenever they try to, they start to feel guilty. You've got a hope and you can share that with them. So how are you doing with the hopes under the umbrella? God says, I want you to be better. I, in fact, want you to be prepared in season and out of season to explain every hope that the scripture gives us. To people. Because that's what they're going to ask about. Why? Because they're hopeless. They don't always admit that to one another. But inside they know it. I'm hopeless. I, I have no hope. I have nothing I can really count on. And you seem to have some things you count on. Why is that? By the way, that means you're having some other kinds of conversations with people too. Because those kind of things generally don't happen because you pass a stranger in the street and they ask you those things. It emerges in interaction with people. But then they ask you about it. We must be prepared because we never know when the chance will arise. One of the experiences I've had is that when I determine it's time for me, I think I'm going to do some witnessing now. Generally, that's not the time I do witnessing. The time I do witnessing seldom aligns with when I think I'm going to do it. God's got his own agenda unfolding. And so he says, no, no. Uh, whatever else you're doing, it's not like you have a bad goal to share your, share your faith here, but that, that, this isn't how it's going to happen today. And then tomorrow, this, my path crosses, this person starts to talk, talk about this, and one thing leads to another, and then it's very sort of evident, ah, this is the time, this is the time for witness. Okay, Lord. All right. I'm slow on the uptake, but I'm seeing it. All right, Lord. This is, I guess, what I'm supposed to do. But I've got to be prepared for it. I think of 2 Timothy 4.2, which is addressed to spiritual leaders, and it says, be ready to preach in season and out of season. You know, there is no good season. Uh, there's always an opportunity that can arise at the most unexpected times. Now, here's the truth of the matter for you and I. I don't know anyone who doesn't have a dismal record of missed opportunities. Honestly, I don't. In fact, 
when we have some of those heartfelt discussions over a coffee or something, away from all the other things. People will even get to the point of saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I may not use this word, but this is what they mean. I'm, I'm sort of haunted by the fact I didn't take advantage of that. Or this opened up and I didn't speak to it. I didn't take advantage of what God had done. And my response in those kind of times open up is, know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Happened to me too. And they say, ah, oh, I'm so grieved about it. I know God did this. I said, yeah, I know that grief too. Isn't it wonderful that we can confess our sins? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that isn't to perpetuate passivity. It's to get us a chance to get up, dust our knees off, and move forward. Let's not miss the next opportunity. You know, Now we'll still miss some. Well, let's keep going. Let's keep on going. Try to share. So, admit to it. You know, sometimes people have a... Di- have a dismal record of missed opportunities because they're afraid of people. And that can happen. And we can look to the Lord for boldness in such situations. But you know my experience? More often, the opportunities are missed because we simply are unprepared to take advantage of them. We don't know what to say. It doesn't help you in the car heading back home to say, oh, I wish I'd said that. How many times has that happened to you? And God's saying, no, that's not where I want that. What I wish is that you'd prepared to be ready for doing it when I open the opportunity. Doesn't it make sense? He says, God says, listen, prepare yourself. Be ready. Be ready. So are you ready to give a good and reasoned answer? For the hope that's in you, any of those hopes that we're talking about. That wasn't an exhaustive list, by the way, of the New Testament hopes that we have in Christ. Uh, Wouldn't it be wonderful to be like Paul as as he's described in Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. It says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving it was necessary for Christ to suffer and raise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, he's the Christ. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful <laughs> if we could say, well, yeah, uh, I, could, I could reason with you from the scriptures. I could talk to you about how it was necessary that Jesus had to die for us. My problem of sin. And he had to raise from the dead. And I, I, Wouldn't it be wonderful to say, I'm always ready when the opportunities develop. <laughs> to share on those things. And by the way, if there's anybody here this morning that says, I know I'm not prepared. I want to be prepared. I need some more preparation. You talk to me about it. I'm always willing to have a time, even if it's one-on-one or if it's a small group, and say, let's talk about defense of the hope. Uh, Some ways to address this question, to know that you know what to share. Always ready to share that with you. And trust the Lord to find the times to do that. He also said, listen, strategy number two, do it with gentleness and respect. Ah. So it isn't just that we're sharing. It's how we're sharing that makes a difference. And God says, yep, that's exactly right. Now, How you're sharing is irrelevant if you're not sharing. 
So, so I mean, that's, that's why he addresses that first. But you could sort of be prepared to share and then share in a way counterproductively. So he says, listen, let's, let's talk about as you're sharing, do it with gentleness and respect. What does gentleness mean? Preos is the Greek word, which means a meek persona. Uh, the same words used, by the way, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, talking about Jesus, where it says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle. I'm gentle. That didn't mean he was milk toast. just meant he understood what this word was all about. He was gentle. Lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. The idea of gentle means that I have a cooperative, constructive, rather than combative orientation. Sadly, there's no shortage of people who are combative in their orientation, just looking for another notch on the belt. Somebody that they can massacre with their answers. God says, hey, no, 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 that's not how it's going to work. Remember, even in 2 Timothy, he talks about correcting your opponents with gentleness, that perhaps they may come to understand the truth, escape the snare of the devil, you know. Uh, hey, listen, God says, listen, when you're sharing, I want you prepped to share, but when you're sharing, I want a cooperative, constructive spirit going on here. God hasn't called us to contentious debates. Nobody becomes a believer because I bullied them into it or shamed them into it, or manipulated them into it, they become a believer because God has been able to use me or you in sharing the truth of the gospel. And those things that would only obstruct it getting to the very heart of a person are removed and they get to the heart of a person. Uh, because it's got to be a decision in there, not a manipulated decision. So what do I do to share it? God's not called us to contentious debates. We defend, yes, but not in a way that produces defensiveness in people. Now, they may reject the truth we're sharing, but they, if they do, it's because of that truth, not because of the way we sought to share it. One of the people who had a great deal of influence on me in my early Christian life said, hey, listen, uh, this isn't about winning an argument. It's about winning a heart. I said, <laughs> I guess he sort of saw maybe I had a little bit of a com combative spirit about myself, you know. It's like, well, this is the truth. Get your act together, you know. I'm sure I've left that long before. It doesn't show up anywhere anymore, I guess. But uh, anyway, that that's the truth that was there. He says, I want you to have this. I want you to have this respect I mean, I want you to have this, this gentleness, and I want you to have respect. By the way, that word respect, same word we had in the second chapter, where that was part of the countercultural lifestyle for the pilgrim, for the alien exile in this world. Uh, seeing people as worthy of respect, possessing dignity in the sight of God. Now, how does one witness making a defense of the gospel in a way that respects people? Well, one of the ways, it means I take their questions seriously. Even if, in the setting of it, I don't have an answer. There were times in my life where somebody 
their question and my response to them in humbleness had to be that's a that's a great question and it does need an answer I don't have an answer but let me meet with you tomorrow over a coke I'll have an answer because it needs an answer and I apologize I don't have it and Lord willing while those occurred fairly often there wasn't fairly often the same question that I was not prepared to answer the next time a lot of questions and you can't always be prepared for all of them but treat them with respect they, they possess dignity in the sight of the Lord I, I take their, their questions seriously I'm not out to embarrass them because they're asking the questions. All people have value. All have a worth before the Lord. All need to hear the gospel here and everywhere else. That's why I'm thinking they need to hear it in Algeria, where Chris and Liz, you know, like bat their heads against the wall to share it. And they need to hear it in Uganda and in Kenya and the places God gives us. They need to hear it here. People have value to God. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, later on, uh, it tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He's not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Why? Because he loves them. That's why. So, having respect and gentleness is part of the picture. One last thing he says here. Determined to be an ambassador with a good conscience, because he comes up with that phrase, doesn't he? From the years I began in ministry as a student with Campus Crusade, later went on their staff, later directed an interdenominational ministry, and then eventually in the pastoral work, and then back into the university world is in Christian work and also in a professor role. This is what I found. The most frequently raised objections to the gospel were behavioral, not philosophical. What do I mean by that? The thing that stood in the way of people was a bad example of somebody claiming to be a believer. Because they dismissed whatever that believing was about because they said, well, look, <laughs> proof's in the pudding. You know, look at this person. That Obviously, this can't be real or would make a difference in that person. And so the obvious point here is we need to make sure our words and our walk match up. <laughs> our honor God. That our lifestyle can open doors or it can close them. If we're not concerned about the lifestyle, then even if we've done preparation work, we're not going to get many opportunities to share it with anybody. Or if we share it, it's not because the questions have arisen, but because we buttonholed somebody, pushed them against the wall, grabbed their collar, and said, are you saved? You know, the, the point being that we don't have opportunity if our life is not the kind that fosters questions. That rec people recognize a difference in what makes you tick. I don't quite know what that difference is, but there's no question there's a difference. You, you're not driven by the same things I'm driven by and the other people I know. What's going on? What's going on? And that's not something that's just, oh, you're a Christian pastor, of course. No, no, no. All believers. People should say, something makes you tick that I don't quite understand. It's not what makes me tick. And the opportunities that emerge out of that. 
good conscience certainly is linked to a maturing growth as a disciple. But it's also linked to how we deal with it in our inevitable stumblings. <laughs> Make no mistake, we all still stumble. So how do I deal with that? Good conscience comes because I've confessed that sin, admitted it to the Lord, turned away from it, forsake it, rest in the fact I have a propitiation with the Father and that my advocate with the Father is pleading that before the Father, and I move on. By the way, a good conscience is never achieved because somebody feels sorry they sinned. It's achieved because you repent of sin, confess it, and turn and forsake and move forward. Even the world feels sorry when they sin, or at least when it's found out. There's nothing redemptive in that. There's more going on. Finally, he says, good conscience is linked to why we're suffering, too. And that's how he concludes it. He says, well, sometimes suffering is a result of our own sin choices. And when that's the case, it doesn't do much to help the gospel. You know, it doesn't open many doors when we deserve the suffering. But when it's undeserved, happening despite walking in the light and seeking to be pleasing to the Lord, then it can help our witness uh, it opens doors. And that's exactly what Paul discovered in Philippians 1, chained between the praetorian guard. And he says, in verses 12 to 14, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And they say, well, how could it advance the gospel? You're chained between the praetorian guard. You don't even have a chance to go out and preach. And you're one of our great platform artists. You know, It's like, well, how's this advancing the gospel? And his response is, it's become known through the whole imperial guard or praetorian guard and all the rest that my imprisonment's for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word. You see how even unjust suffering? His was because of Christ. That's the reason he was suffering and in prison. It can serve a purpose. So a good conscience is tied to why I'm suffering. And by the way... You will suffer. Second Timothy tells us, All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not you run the risk. Will be. Determinative structure. So when you do suffer, let's make sure it's a redemptive reason. <laughs> so let's make sure that God can use that. And he'll use it because even the people making you suffer will know that it, they're making you suffer because of Christ. Others will say, well, maybe I'll be bold. I'll share Christ too. And God's got his own way to do this. Okay, so here's the strategy. Are you prepared to make the defense for the hope that's in you? Are you gentle and respectful when you're sharing the defenses? Are you living in such a way that you've got a good conscience before the Lord? Uh, important ingredients in any witnessing program and in any uh, opportunity to impact on a fallen world around us. Now, the remainder of the chapter 3, still building on this theme of voicing the truth, ends up targeting some of the core central issues of the content of the gospel, the things that we are to share in the midst of the defense of our hopes. So, Lord willing, we'll turn attention to that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to be together on this day. 
Thankful for what's happened for each of our lives that we've come to know Christ as Savior. Thankful that you placed us in family. Thankful that we have freedom together. Be working in us. Use us in this day and in this week ahead. And Lord, challenge us in every way we need challenged so that we could be useful tools in your hands. And we'll thank you for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Good to have you here this morning.